Our guest today is Kaylee Parkinson from PaperCup. Kaylee is an experienced people and HR manager with a background in tech, graduate recruitment, and a passion for inclusive workplaces. Topics discussed include transitioning from recruitment to HR, inclusive workplaces, how to recruit diverse talent, and feedback cultures. I'm your host, Jose, and this is the Coffee with a Recruiter podcast. Okay, now we are recording. Hi, Kaylee. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. Um, I mean, the weather definitely doesn't help. Um, but, you know, I can be as good as, as I can be under the circumstances. It's funny, the first <laughs> time we spoke, we we joked about how the weather is kind of the icebreaker for nearly every sort of British conversation. And, and here I am breaking the ice again with like, hey, what's up with this weather, though? Exactly. And especially in lockdown, there's uh, there's not much else to, to discuss as an icebreaker. So, yeah, British yeah. weather. <laughs> yeah, well, sort of icebreakers during lockdown are uh, like, go, you know, the, talking about going for a walk and the parks, the pets and uh, the weather. And I think that's about it, really. Right. Yeah, I think you covered it. That's that's everything there is in the small talk arena. <laughs> yeah, or or like shows like Netflix, like that's 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 pretty much it. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time for this, Kaylee. And I've been really looking forward to this catch up because, well, you you know you've you've seen uh, talent acquisition and and people functions from different aspects, and you know your your sort of initial intro to. Um, to, to recruitment and then to people is somewhat unusual, I would say. And uh, well, the, on top of that, when we had sort of our intro discussion, you mentioned something very interesting, which is your passion for inclusive work workplaces. And that got me really curious because I'm, I'm not incredibly familiar with the topic. So I wanted to unpack that with you. So, um, you know, thank you so much. No, no problem. Very, very excited. Well, maybe to before before jumping into like the um, the sort of technical stuff and so forth, can you maybe give us an intro to who you are and what you do? Yes, of course. Um, so start with the easy bit. My name. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm Kaylee Parkinson, and currently I'm the head of people at PaperCup. Uh, and PaperCup is a it's a machine learning company, and we've got this uh, this really amazing translation software. So. We, we translate videos by generating a voice and the voice sounds very real and, and also a lot like the original speaker as well. So it, it, it's all it's all kind of based around the fact that 99.9% of all of the video content uh, out there is in is in one language. And we have these these ambitions to make all that content watchable in, in any language. So uh, very cool, very cool business, very cool space. Um, in terms of my background, I have an undergraduate degree in ancient history, <laughs> so a uh, little bit of a, a slightly more unusual uh, background for somebody in in HR or recruitment. And after graduating, I'm a history graduate also, so we, you know, we, ah. you know, it's it's not it is unusual, but you know, it's it's good to meet other fellow history grads. Uh, just just saying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. A lot you meet a lot of psychology people with psychology degrees, um, and then then a few historians too. Good to know. Um, so after I graduated, I moved into an HR admin role, uh, and then I moved into early careers, so campus recruitment, intern, and graduate programs. And I did that for around seven seven or so years. Yeah, so it's a very cool space. Um, you learn a lot. It's very broad. Uh, and I started out in investment banking and then moved into tech. And 
I completely fell in love with tech uh, as, as a workplace. So I have a lot of personal passion for all things technology. Um, and I just really love the way uh, that technology businesses worked, working agile and being very innovative and failing fast and just all that way, way of working. And outside of work, well, in the in the normal world, uh, I'm really into uh, my spin classes. I go to that several times a week, uh, and I'm raring to go when things open up again. But at the moment, I mean, working on my house a little bit, doing some painting, uh, hanging out with my my puppy. I have a six month old Boston Terrier pup, um, and I, like a lot of other people, I'm working to complete Netflix. <laughs> I, uh, it's so funny that you mentioned uh, the pet aspect because, um, well, I think you, you got your pet before, um, I think it was before lockdown, right? Or was it during? It was during. He is a lockdown puppy, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I think, you know, I got my cat a bit before lockdown. And uh, the good thing of, of both of us is we haven't returned our pets yet. Like this was, it's quite often in the news, right? Like, okay, there was a huge rise in people. Uh, adopting pets and then three months later returning them because they realized like oh actually I'm not a pet person I was just you know I I wanted some company but I realized that pets are like too much work or something along those lines it's a it's a cruel world you know that we that we live in I know I know it makes (laughs) it makes me so sad thinking about it I'm a major animal lover and I would have had a dog sooner um but yeah, I, I was fortunate enough that we we moved into a house, so we had enough space uh, last year to to be able to have a, a dog. And lockdown was just just another reason to go ahead and and take the jump and and do it. So we did. Perfect. Well, um, so one thing I wanted to 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 also comment on briefly before jumping into uh, the the topic uh, that I wanted to discuss was, you know, you you had a. Um, like a very interesting intro to to recruitment and then the people function, right? I mean, you started first as a uh, as an in-house graduate uh, recruiter. Um, you know, most most recruiters they start first in agency um, mm. and then they move in-house. But I think you started in-house from the very beginning, right? I think that that should set you up for some you know some some good success because you you don't learn the bad behaviors that you learn in an agency. I think. <laughs> maybe 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 that's the case it's, I guess it's hard to know um, having not done it but the the year that I spent as an HR admin was at a recruitment agency so oh, okay. perhaps perhaps I witnessed some of the bad behaviors I just didn't partake at the at the time yeah you had exposure not first-hand experience so that mm. that's that's still a positive well what was the um, you know one one popular question is what was the the transition sort of you know, like, I mean, here's here's an interesting one because you went from recruitment to 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 the people function, right? And mm-hmm. recruitment is like an external outward facing role, whereas when you're a people person, you're more inward facing, right? So sort of what was that transition like for you? Because well, I, I asked because a lot of recruiters out there might be considering a move to 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 the people function, which sometimes is somewhat of a semi-natural progression in some cases. What was that progression sort of for you? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and it was something that I had thought about a lot at a, at a particular point in my career. So I, I'd been in graduate recruitment for quite a while. And if you're, if you're less familiar with, with graduate recruitment, it's very cyclical. So it follows the academic year and you do um, interviewing events and career fairs 
in the autumn winter and then you focus on internships and programs in in the spring summer so after seven odd cycles and kind of seven goes around the merry-go-round I could feel that something was missing um and I really wanted to keep learning which I anecdotally understand is the same kind of uh, itch that people get when they're in uh, recruitment either in agency or in-house and they're, they're looking to move into that people function and I felt myself at this fork in the road where I either stayed where I was and kind of tried to keep keep going vertically into a managerial role to broaden my skills or to try something else and like a lot of people I, I thought about the people function so I was really keen to kind of take everything that I'd learned because it's quite a multidisciplined uh, area same with recruitment right you it's it might be outward facing but you still have a lot of internal stakeholders and you understand a lot of the inner workings of uh, the business and the strategy and uh, I, I really wanted to uh, take that knowledge and apply it in a in a broader setting so based on the kind of organizations that I'd worked in I was more familiar with HR generalists or HR business partners so I initially, I kind of tried applying to what I knew and I didn't have much success because they all wanted previous experience, which is, you know, for, for people looking to make the jump, they're probably pretty familiar with this, uh, with this problem. So I decided to look at smaller businesses, which was not what I knew. The startup world was completely alien to me, but I did notice that in the, the job descriptions that I was seeing, I was tending to check a lot more of those boxes of the must-haves and what they were looking for as they were a lot less specific than the big kind of corporates or organizations so I took the jump uh, to a startup very different uh, and they were much more willing to take a, a broader skill set skill set and somebody who is kind of happy to problem solve and just roll their sleeves up and get stuck in uh, and I joined uh, an AI startup as a people and culture manager for the EMEA region and I scaled up with the business and the business needs into a head of people and culture for uh, EMEA and the US. Uh, and that all happened quite quickly. And you, you know, you, you really learn a lot in, in that space of time. And I also think that startups in particular are very open to taking people with a recruitment background as their first or one of their early people hires, as a lot of them are really focused on growth and increasing their headcount. So you you know that way you're able to add a lot of value right away and there's this kind of lots of scope to develop other skills there's always you know uh, a need for you to get stuck in into something else and it's a different kind of people function in a startup it's it's quite different to the traditional HR functions that you find in corporates. So it's a lot less about kind of rules and regulations and much more around the people experience and, and how, we, how we work and, and people and culture. That's how it's branded differently, right, than, than human resources. So I feel it lets you um, be a bit more creative and is less restrictive around the, the rules and, and the regulations, like I mentioned. Um, and like I say, you just learn so much. You're so much closer to the business and to the strategy, to, to the extent that my, my last boss actually used to say it was like an MBA in a can. <laughs> and I, I completely agree with that. I, I yeah, I learned so much in, in that short space of time. Well, that's such an interesting observation, and uh, and I can relate to that. Um, I was discussing this with a another recruiter colleague. That's um, um, she was a, a contractor and is going to into she's going in house 
uh, fully permanent in a in a startup. And we were discussing that. So basically, if you're moving from, let's say, recruitment into a more people sort of oriented role, the best, the best maybe, or one of the best ways of doing that is going to a startup, right? And I think mm-hmm. it's because of uh, the nature of startups. It kind of requires more of a generalist in, in various cases, right? Because there's a little bit of recruitment, but there's not enough that you need a full-time recruiter, but there's also mm-hmm. a little bit of people and HR type responsibilities, but not enough that you need a full-time HR person. So what's the best you can hire is someone that can do uh, a bit of both, right? Someone that's open to being flexible and 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 wearing many hats, as they say, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I can definitely relate to the benefits because, you know, when you're that early in a in a startup, you can see you can be a part of that, you know, creating all of the processes from scratch, or, uh, you know, engaging with stakeholders and, and, and building report with them, understanding their insights, what they want, and, and contributing in some way to the direction of the company, right? Yeah, that's right. And there's so many firsts when you join a business at that stage. So, uh, with that, nobody's expecting perfection. I think everybody in a startup is understanding that you're going to be iterating on any of those first. The first interview process, the first uh, applicant tracking system that you use. It's, it's, yeah, it, it's a great time to kind of join and learn and, and fail fast and, and all of that cool stuff and then build on that as, as the business grows. Well, yeah, you got to discover, okay, who are we first as a company, right? What type of culture? Um, do we want to create uh, and then what types of skills do we want to attract and do we want to nurture internally um, and then based on that you sort of start creating slowly but surely uh, an interview process right or a, an onboarding or your values and and the thing is you don't know what the culture is so you're kind of building it you're you know a colleague once told me this like you're driving a, a car while building the car or something along those lines right um, yeah. so it's like you're you know you're building it but at the same time you're you're driving it it's it's a weird but very exciting sort of um you know way of working really yeah yeah it, it's certainly not for the the faint of heart I wouldn't say but um if you if you love learning and you don't mind ambiguity I yeah massively recommend it it was it's a very exciting time to be uh, in a business yeah well it takes a different personality also because some people mm. are you know, some people are better at managing existing processes. You know, if you're more like down to earth, a bit more conservative, and you 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 prefer to be in our, already in an established company where you know the process is already in place. It's just a case yeah. of um, managing existing processes. Then a startup is probably not for you, right? But if you're someone that is actually stimulated by the unexpected or um, you know, uh, you know, for just creating processes from scratch, right? Without, um, without a lot of guidance, then that's more that's more for you. Um, yeah. So I suppose was it also the case with you know the topic I wanted to discuss, which was in- inclusive workplaces, right? I mean, um, you know, maybe at your current company, or was it maybe at Spark Beyond that you needed to maybe start a uh, your inclusive workplace project? Um, and I think maybe one one better way of of starting it is okay. What is an inclusive work workplace to to begin with, right? Because uh, you know I'm I'm somewhat I mean intuitively I kind of know what you're talking about, but I wanted to maybe unpack that in more detail before 
going into mm. the specifics of how cre- how to create that in a company like what is it exactly yeah yeah sure very good question um so i guess to my mind an inclusive workplace is one where everyone is able to do their best work uh and it's also somewhere that allows people to be to be heard to be valued and and to be rewarded in an equitable way and at the same time it's it's a workplace where we can acknowledge and you know ideally celebrate our our differences and and be really understanding that these differences contribute to our success they are you know a, a part of our our success and i think you're right in in saying that you kind of intuitively kind of roughly get the gist but we talk so much more about diversity uh in 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 the people space so diverse talent the benefits of that how to achieve that and all of those efforts can essentially be for naught if your workplace is not inclusive so i i sometimes joke that i would love to put the i first in dni and switch the two around so that it can be a bit more of a prominent part of the conversation because diversity is really about recognizing those differences like we said and, and understanding the benefits and inclusion is really truly valuing and living that and ensuring that your your diverse workforce can do their best work so i guess part of the reason why i'm so passionate about it is because on the surface it seems like such a no brainer it's, it's obvious right who doesn't want to be heard and valued and rewarded fairly and a lot of people might think that based on their own experience that is or it broadly is the case so why all the effort why why have workshops and discussions around this but the reality is that for a lot of people that, that's not been their experience um that they haven't seen that kind of equitable treatment and fair pay uh, and and being heard and valued so the right thing to do and you know where i feel like i can have an impact is to try and level that playing field so you know there's a there's a moral aspect to this in that it it, it really to me is the right thing to do and then you know there's so many studies now i i can't even count the amount of studies that show that it's good for business it fuels innovation you know you will produce more revenue with a more diverse leadership team there's there's a lot of hard hard facts that this is good for business on top of just being the right thing to do yeah that reminds me um you know this this book i read um it was it was long ago so i might be missing most of the uh the content of it but it was from matthew syed rebel ideas yes and yeah. uh, basically he talks about um the value of of diversity but actually what he talks about is cognitive diversity which means mm. you know different you know diversity and ways of thinking diversity and ideas and perspectives and and what you bring to the table right from that perspective as opposed to what we maybe more commonly know as racial diversity, he believes that, you know, diversity and, and ways of thinking and diversity of thought is actually uh, maybe just as important, right? Because, um, well, not just because of that reason you said, right, that that's all about, um, you know, because it's the right thing morally to do, but also what you said was, you know, innovation, right? And especially in, in tech companies where we both work, um, you know, things are changing always, there's adoption of new technologies and, if you fall behind, then, you know, it, it, it might be the end of you, right? So, so, and what better way of, of innovating than bringing in new ideas and new perspectives? Um, so that's definitely something that, uh, that, uh, that we need to sort of cultivate in a company. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're really seeing uh, the the shift. It's a slow one and we're not there, but it from being uh, these initiatives being kind of prote- protective and, and risk averse. So, you know, that we're not sued, uh, you know, or, or for discrimination. I feel like we're moving away from that and really starting to understand those benefits. So, like you say, in a tech company, if you build a product, um, you want to mirror uh, your, your users. So if your internal workforce is not even as diverse as your user base, you are unlikely to build a, 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 the best product that you can to reflect your own user base, in fact. So, yeah, there's a lot of kind of really hard, tangible um, business benefits rather than even just thinking about the protected characteristics that we, we traditionally think about in you know, a, a human resources function. And one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you, right, is, okay, so we have the theory of uh, what it is to create a, um, let's say, an inclusive workplace. But mm-hmm. um, so how do you define that, right? But okay, so when it comes to, you know, implementing these things in practice, like, what would you say, I mean, obviously, maybe there's there's no one way of doing this, and and your approach might be different from my approach, or, mm-hmm. you know, you know, different approaches work for different companies, depending on where you are. But what's been maybe your your approach to creating an inclusive workplace where people's opinions are valued and they can do the best work that they can do? And obviously, we don't need to unpack it and, and write a whole book about it now. But sort of what would be top level, the, the, the guidelines that you would implement? You know, if there was zero, zero inclusive workplace in a company, what would be sort of steps one, two and three roughly that you would that you would start? Yeah. With? Yeah, that's a that's a really uh, a really great question. So it can feel very big and overwhelming. Like this is a hefty, meaty subject um, that is uh, tense at times. And I think the core thing that you can do and probably the most key component is education. So really practical things like unconscious bias trainings and discussions or workshops around things like microaggressions. They can be really powerful and really practical. So those kinds of sessions are, to my mind, really useful because they can cover a lot of different angles. So you can tackle facts uh, and stats, which really appeal to some. And then you can bring in people's real life experiences, which can be really, really powerful. And they're, they're much harder to kind of deny it because they're not hypothetical anymore. You can't gloss over them. Um, and then adding in more kind of practical tips to that. So things like really encouraging people to discuss with themselves what their biases are and acknowledging that that's totally normal to have them, but to acknowledge them, kind of get comfortable with them and figure out a way to mitigate the the negative impact that they might have in others uh, in the workplace. So that to me is probably probably one of the, the, the key ways. And building kind of safe psychological spaces to have these conversations. These are not comfortable conversations. Um, I actually attended a a, a workshop yesterday and there's a great lady uh, there, Rocky Howard, and she, she made this comment that really stuck with me that for these kinds of conversations, sometimes it can feel really uncomfortable showing up as a white man in these situations. And she made the point that she has been uncomfortable showing up as a black female in the workplace just in the workplace for 50 years. And these things are, they're tough, they're challenging. You have to have these bold conversations and it does take sacrifice, but it, but it is 
it is worth it. Um, and on this kind of psychological space, it's we really do need that safety because it's clear that having bias doesn't make you a bad person. This isn't about being a good or a bad person or vilifying white men. That angle on the conversation just doesn't move us forward. And in any case, you you know, we need allies who maybe haven't had those experiences themselves, who haven't seen the workplace in the same way, but who are prepared to, to listen and then to advocate and to call out the actions that don't fit with that inclusive environment. Um, and then I, I would say, especially in the startup world, kind of step step three is looking at your processes and kind of reviewing your systems and processes and making sure that they're really robust and they do their job in terms of mitigating bias. So I remember one, one McKinsey study that this, this kind of always sticks in my head is that women have to provide more evidence of their competence. And for women of color, that increases even more so. So you can really imagine how that affects progression and promotion. And the structures that we that we build around uh, progression frameworks are designed to be fair. They're designed to be a fair way to assess talent, but they don't always have that effect. And I think, unfortunately, even in, in the startup world, we can be guilty of a, a gut feel when it comes to recruitment or a person's abilities. But that's a really fast way to let bias keep it, creep in. So reviewing those structures and processes, ensuring that there's equal access to training and opportunities and just reviewing things and holding yourself accountable are, are, are really helpful. So um, those are my one, two, threes, I think. Education, uh, allyship and, and reviewing your, your processes. Well, I wanted to, to add that, you know, I think, and it, this closely relates to, to the allyship um, piece. And, and this, this is based on a, a discussion I had with a, a close friend, which is basically, it's good to have leadership support um, yeah. when, you know, implementing inclusive workplaces, because, um, you know, let's say if, if you're a lead, you know, an engineering lead, or, uh, you know, whatever sort of leadership position you're in, right? If you signal that this matters to you by um you know contributing in in some way or in some activity to uh to the inclusive workplace then other people you know the the employees will realize oh okay you know the um leadership they're 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 what's the, what's the expression again you know they're practicing what they preach right yeah um, so it's okay for me to also voice my opinion and uh, and contribute to the inclusive workplace discussion. Um, this is based on a discussion I had. So basically, oh, um, a colleague and I we were talking about. I think it was work-life balance, and mm -hmm. and you know that awkward moment where you know you want to make sure you have that work-life balance, and you maybe want to leave at five p.m. Right, but mm -hmm. you don't want to be the first one to leave at at five p.m. So it's that like, oh, do I leave now? But leave my colleague sort of work until six p.m. What do I do? Um, but if leadership shows that, hey, guys, hey, don't forget, you know, you have your work-life balance and, um, you know, I'm an engineering lead, but I got to leave at 5 p.m. because of, uh, you know, you don't even need to say a reason because of X, Y, and Z, um, then mm. other employees are going to realize that, oh, you know what, this 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 value, it actually matters to the company. So I can start using it. And uh, and that, I suppose, counts for, for inclusive workplaces. And I think it's, it's also a case of... Um, you know, it comes back to education you mentioned, right? So making sure that you're not sort of giving directives and orders to 
to the, those around you that you work with when it comes to implementing an inclusive workplace project, but showing the, the benefits and the data and the value of, that it can bring, you know, convincing as opposed to giving, giving directives, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, you know, context is is so important with all of this and modeling behaviors you're you, you're so right when you're talking about you know the, the manager walking out at, at five o'clock I think sometimes managers underestimate the uh, the influence that they they do have in those kinds of situations and you can say until you're blue in the face it's fine to leave early you know take time off but if if people aren't seeing that happen um you you know, inadvertently, you build a culture that that maybe isn't the case. Culture is this fascinating thing that you have it, whether whether you want to have it or not. And it's these kind of unspoken rules and, you know, the things that are rewarded and the things that are punished that no one necessarily says out loud. Uh, so, you know, it, it's unlikely that someone in your in your place of work is going to say, it's fine to turn up late to meetings no one typically says that but you observe behaviors of others and you observe that it's okay to come in late five ten minutes late to a meeting and then that is part of your culture it's baked in and all of these things leaving at five and and modeling good behaviors and rewarding good behaviors and really like you said practicing what you preach if if you know if somebody is acting in a way that does not uphold the kind of inclusive workplace that you want to have really demonstrating that that's not okay and, and showing, you know, really walking the talk on, on, on that and just making sure that you, that behavior is, is not accepted and pe people understand that. Well, here's the, the tricky part, right? Because a lot of it also starts with recruitment, you know? So when you're trying to, you know, create a diverse, not necessarily like a, what's a good way of putting it an inclusive workplace, right? Or maybe, yeah. maybe a diverse workforce, um, a lot of the pressure also falls on recruitment to 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 source and to to find um, you know people of diverse backgrounds and ways of thinking and 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 so forth. I mean, but it's it's kind of a tricky one. I've always felt because um, uh, you know you can find the right people, but if internally um, the culture doesn't quite match um, you know diverse thinking, right? Then sort of that that's when you sort of create maybe um, a tricky scenario where you're bringing diverse people into a not so diverse um, company, or maybe that's a good thing, right? Maybe that's how you change the status quo, right? I mean, it's got to start somewhere, right? Um, so I guess sort of what does, how does recruitment play a role in really genuinely creating that diverse workforce? Is it just basically sourcing diverse candidates and that's about it? Or is there something a bit, a bit more to it? Yeah, I think you made a, some some really good points there. Uh, sourcing is is obviously a, a really big part, and and making sure that you're reaching out to lots of different kinds of people. But I feel that recruitment and recruiters they're they're often the face of the business, right? And they're the gatekeepers for joining a business. And there's just so much weight on them to source that diverse talent, as you mentioned, and, and bring them through the process. And this is this is exactly why I think we need sometimes more emphasis on the the I on the inclusive workplace because your recruitment function can work so hard and do such great work and those team members will join and they might move on because then they don't feel valued or they can't do their best work 
or they make an effort as you said you 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 bring you try and change the dna of the of the company by bringing in more diverse talent and they're not able to to make those changes people don't want to hear um you know the uncomfortable conversations but i mean outside of the sourcing i think recruiters and recruitment functions contribute so much here so they're really living the interview process and they're right out there in touch with the market and they can really feed back and, and have a lot of influence. So uh, right, right from the beginning. So making sure that the language in job descriptions is inclusive, um, making sure that you're being open to different backgrounds on CVs, you know, challenging that hiring manager who says they only want to see CVs from XYZ University and, and, and being the advocate for, for change there and just challenging why maybe some of those um, criteria are coming up. Uh, other things like, so for example, something we do at Papercup as much as we can, and especially in technical roles, is, is giving candidates the option to either do a live coding test or a take-home test. And that's a more inclusive process then that lends itself to, I suppose, letting a, a wider group, a more diverse group of candidates shine through the process. And I think recruiters have a lot of uh, sway there. They can really kind of help design that process and feedback about that process I think there's also a lot of responsibility to to call out bias uh, in the process or the feedback and to hold everybody accountable there to to deliver that really fair process that's that's what this is supposed to to be in, in you know at, at its core and I'm also seeing a resurgence in uh, concepts like blind interviewing where um, that's where you you know you might not pass on the feedback uh, to the next round or CVs aren't used or they are but they're anonymized and I think that's really interesting and recruitment can really add a lot of value by I suppose by being bold and kind of testing new ideas you, you know you, you just can't expect different results by doing the same thing and I think recruiters and recruitment functions can can really make a massive difference here in contributing to that. I think if you're really passionate about recruitment and and interviewing, then you can definitely bring in some some very valuable insights. Um, and I like that you mentioned interviewing. Um, there's this book you you might have read it. Um, it's called "Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders?" Um, <laughs> it's by Thomas Chamora per music. He's like this HR um, business psychologist. Um, it's like probably one of the best books I've ever read when it comes to uh, recruitment uh, and and just just hiring leaders in general, right? Um, mm. And part of part of um, what he what he says, and this was a while back, so I I prefer people read it than to to listen to my summary. But but basically, we we tend to promote or hire um, male leaders um, more often than we do female leaders. And part of that, the reason for that is that. Um, a lot of times we correlate confidence with competence, right? Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times men tend to be very, you know, overconfident, right? Like during interviews or during one-to-ones, during any discussion, they'll boast about how how good they are, right? Like how good they are at their work and how much they've achieved. Um, but the thing is they're exaggerating their achievements, which, mm-hmm. which means that they still get... Um, you know, promoted to leadership roles, um, and then they end up failing in those in those roles, right? And and the author presents some data that shows that, you know, how many people out there in the world are dissatisfied in their jobs, 
and and partly due to 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 leadership issues, right? Um, mm-hmm. And what he mentions is that actually we need to look for you know more humble leaders that are um, you know very much uh, in tune with their level of competence, right? That that understand how good they are as opposed to how good they they think they are. And a lot of times, um, you know, and he put he promotes some data in his book that shows that actually women have those 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 qualities of of you know understanding their competence um you know working well with others um and and not sort of overselling themselves just being really humble about their skills and still uh, being competent leaders and he well he mentions angela merkel as as one of the leaders right that that we that we that we know about that's that's very low-key you know very um you know out of the spotlight but still you know runs her country you know amazingly well so that's one thing that uh you know if there's one book that i can recommend that talks about the interview process and sort of what the ideas are behind it and 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 tips you can recommend and that that's definitely one of the best books i've read amazing i i've i've made a note of that one and you know you you're, you're so right and even prior to the interview process so a traditional interview process you know in a large organization definitely leans more lends itself more to um somebody who's overly confident doing better but even you step back to the job description and there are plenty of stats about how you know a man will apply to um a job if they meet you know 50 percent of the criteria whereas a woman won't apply unless she meets 90 percent those are not the correct stats i'm <laughs> I'm remembering yeah. off the top of my head, but just, um, just a disclaimer for everyone, like you know, where at least I'm from my, I'm I'm talking about stats I read long ago, and uh, you know, like I might I might be mis- mixing some stuff, but the general gist of it, I think, of what we're talking about is right. Just um, I would really implore everyone to to double check the stats and and the facts, mm. um, you know, just in case. But yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Fact, please fact check us. This is, uh, <laughs> please do. Uh, but but exactly, you know, and it, even then, right from the get go, you have less applications um, from from women in general because they're less likely to apply, and maybe the language is uh, lends itself to more kind of masculine characteristics. There's a there's a lot to unpack, and yeah, I'm sure we could talk about it for much longer. <laughs> Yeah. Oh no. You can. We can write a whole book on on that topic. Um. But maybe for another podcast. Because sure. I think one one thing that I wanted to 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 move to was, um. You know, one thing that you mentioned to me in the past, which was, I think maybe this relates to it, right? Feedback cultures. I suppose mm-hmm. is this the same the same topic, or is this something completely different, or or how does it play it? Yeah. So, I suppose when you think about well what what it what do I mean by feedback culture what even is a feedback culture every workplace already has some kind of feedback culture again like we talked about it's these unspoken rules and this is obviously then just the unspoken rules around giving feedback both informally and informally so that might be how often you give it how constructive can you be how blunt soft etc and to my mind a really strong feedback culture that then lends itself to inclusivity is one where everyone feels that they're able to feel feedback to another person in the organization any person at any level um, and where the intention is always positive you know no one's there to try and trip anybody up or show anybody show anybody up um, but something that's really important about feedback cultures is that you need to set rules of the road uh, and, and just ensure that everyone's in agreement about how that should work and we're all 
singing from the same hymn sheet, if you will. So it, you can see if you had maybe half of the company thinking that the expectation is to feedback one-on-one in the moment and the other half are reserving their feedback just for formal reviews, you can see where there'd be conflict and how that might not gel. Um, you know, those working on the formal assumption are probably more likely to think that the other feedback is too frequent or it's too critical or it's aggressive. So again, I think this is something uh, that takes practice. Uh, It probably takes some training and maybe some workshops to, to get everybody aligned. But it's another really tangible way to demonstrate that all voices are, are important and, and valued and to, to get those opinions heard. And what do you do when, let's say, here's here's maybe one scenario that I'd, that I'd maybe struggle with because, you know, for some segments of the, you know, of the population, let's say, you know, you have different personalities, right, in a workforce. So you have maybe people that are more introverted and more shy and are more afraid of, of providing their opinions and mm. and and they're afraid of repercussions um you know how, how do you i suppose engage with people that maybe fall more on this side of the spectrum right because intuitively i'd say that you you don't want to maybe force them into giving you know into giving their feedback and and voicing their opinions even you know even if they don't want to voice them right i mean it, that's kind of like forcing yeah. people to 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 comply with the feedback culture right which I don't know, maybe is that is that the way to go or is that maybe a step too far? Like, how do you how do you instill that culture? But um, and at the same time, not forcing people to to, you know, to 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 commit to like the tyranny of feedback cultures almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's a really good point. I, I think, again, context is really important here so that people understand the purpose and the value and that it doesn't feel like one of those um kind of cultish elements of of a business that you know this is how we do feedback here and this is how we give it and you fall in line and you do it this way um or you're not you know you're not part of the the gang um I think you 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 need to have that front of mind and avoid it and I think you're kind of right to call that out so there's probably a couple of ways just off the top of my head that I think you can mitigate that so one is making use of like tools and technology that support different ways of giving feedback or different ways of giving opinions. So even in a strong feedback culture, like you say, there's people with simply different appetites for direct feedback, be that personality wise or or culturally, you know, if you were, if you have an organization and you have offices in um, Japan and offices in uh, the Nordics, those two cultures are opposite ends of the kind of Uh, blunt direct uh, feedback spectrum so you really have to find a way to uh, make sure that people are are adapting and something like you know providing multiple channels is quite an inclusive step making sure that they're you know you provide ways where people can give feedback face to face if that's their if that's their jam if that's their vibe and maybe making sure that there's a way to give uh, written feedback that in more in the moment again not just waiting for the 360 review but something where a different personality type can take a moment uh you know write it out think mull it over and, and then and then send that feedback um I think, again, another way is modeling. And we've already talked about this, but I think it has a lot more um, influence. Again, you mentioned kind of uh, backlash or repercussions. So I think 
you know, managers and, and, and leadership uh, sharing feedback or opinions or, or, or challenging ideas in the open at those senior levels and modeling that behavior and modeling taking it well, right? Taking the feedback uh, positively in the way that it was intended, that can help reassure that there's none of that backlash coming. And even if you, you know, go so far as to reward that behavior, to really demonstrate that it's it's a positive thing, that again, all kind of builds up to that sort of safe space that we talk about where people are likely to feel more comfortable to speak up, even if it's not their natural disposition. And perhaps their natural disposition is that way because they have, you know, seen backlash before or they have seen politicking in an organization. Um, and I think kind of finally allyship, again, we can't, we come back to allyship can play a role here. So, you know, people who are maybe a little bit more comfortable in being direct or bold, advocating for those with different views. Um, even things like following up, uh, if you see someone being cut off in a meeting, kind of bringing the conversation back to them and sorry, you, you were saying and you, you were cut off and bringing that back so that we're allowing all those voices to be heard and calling out that kind of overly dismissive behavior where someone is cutting someone off or someone is dismissing an idea very quickly, kind of calling that out, bringing it back to that just allows people to think, okay, well, you know, I'm not just going to be shut down. I, I can say something. There are no repercussions. And if I don't want to say it in this channel, maybe there's another channel that I can share that. So I think there's a couple of ways that you can tackle it, but it's, it's always something that you need to be sensitive to because we are, we are diverse creatures and, and we like to kind of tackle this kind of sensitive issue in different ways. I really like what you said about allyship. I think, uh, you know, having colleagues step in and just, you know, just chip in with like, hey, sorry, sorry, we interrupted you. Like, sorry, you were saying, right? Because like one of the problems or not necessarily problems, but challenges is that, you know, some colleagues are much more assertive than than others, right? Um, mm. And voicing their opinions, right? So they can maybe you know, with their assertiveness, whether it's by raising their voice, talking fast, you know, interrupting what you're saying, or, or, um, you know, providing counter arguments, or just dismissing your idea, it can, it can, it can sort of drown, drown your voice out if you're someone that's more introverted and more quiet, right? Um, mm. Even if, even if their ideas is, are not necessarily strong, they can still be assertive about it. And, and push your, your, your voice out of the way, but having good support from colleagues and just you know, stepping in and saying like, hey, sorry, we, we interrupted you. Sorry, can you continue, please? That's definitely mm. one thing that we can then we can look at for in order to 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 generate that feedback culture and, you know, include and that inclusive workplace type type approach that we're looking for. Um, yeah. yeah. And I suppose just to just to wrap up, Kaylee, so for for more information about yourself and and, you know, maybe any, you know, social media where we can find you, like, where can we go? You can uh, find me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to, to take new connections. I'm not so active. I, I'm getting a little bit active on Clubhouse, which is very new and exciting for me. But uh, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. What's Clubhouse? Clubhouse? Oh, wow. It's, uh, it's like a new social media that's uh, audio. So it's live conversations um, where people kind of drop in. You can ask questions. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's new. But um I can I can tell you more about it. Oh, I mean, I'm super curious right now. That's something we're gonna have <laughs> you, to follow up after the the, the podcast. 
You bet. You bet. <laughs> Perfect, Kaylee. Well, um, Kaylee, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And, uh, you know, there's definitely tons of insights in this um, episode that we can you know that we can unpack that we can discuss and that hopefully people can utilize so um it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you so much thank you been a pleasure i really enjoyed our call with kaylee you can find her contact details in the episode description if you like this podcast then please subscribe or follow thanks again and stay safe